Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the August 23rd, 2022 episode of Unchained. I'm looking for a part-time evergreen editor for Unchained. If you're skilled in SEO and love blockchain and crypto, email your resume and writing samples to hello at unchainedpodcast.com with the subject line, Evergreen Editor Application. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Harness the full power of the Avalanche Network with Core, your new Web3 command center. Built by Ava Labs, Core is more than just a wallet. It's a non-custodial browser extension engineered for users to seamlessly and securely experience Web3 like never before. Explore Avalanche dApps, NFTs, bridges, subnets, and more today. Whether you're crypto curious or a C-suite decision maker, you have to check out Web3 with A16Z, the chart-topping technology podcast about the future of the next internet. Listen to Web3 with A16Z on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's topic is MEV, which up until recently was called minor extractable value and is now being called maximal extractable value. Here to discuss are Stefan Gosselin, co-founder and chief architect of Flashbots, and Uri Klarman, CEO of Blockstrat Labs. Welcome, Stefan and Uri. Hey. Hello, hello. MEV is a pretty controversial subject, as I discovered when I started diving into it. But before we get into all the concerns and arguments about it, let's just make sure people really understand what MEV is, how it works, etc. Right now, we're in uh, a phase where Ethereum has a proof-of-work consensus algorithm. So why don't we just talk about what MEV looks like right now under proof-of-work? Stefan, do you want to start with a description? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, as you mentioned, MEV is a very deep rabbit hole, extremely deep rabbit hole, uh, f- full of monsters um, <laughs> and, uh, and unexpected findings. But uh, I mean, you know, what's been really interesting about MEV and in particular, I guess, the, the narrative and the, the meme of MEV is how it's sort of come to mean something different to different people. And it's, uh, it's a narrative that's been sort of picked up by a var- variety of different users of blockchains to help advertiser protocol, try to explain what they're doing, try to say what's wrong with other people's protocol, try to, it's, it's just become this, this really deep and interesting technical topic. In terms of, you know, the Flashbots perspective on, on MEV, um, we saw MEV as uh, sort of an economic force that came to be with, with blockchains, um, but exists outside of it. Um, and, and in particular, you know, our observation was that this, this economic force came from the roles that certain actors in, uh, in a blockchain have, in particular miners um, at the time when the research came out. Uh, so we, we explored what are the different activities that uh, miners are able to take 
with regards to the powers that they have in the protocol and how can they use those powers to be able to maximize the amount of value that they they generate for themselves. Practically, a lot of MEV means ordering censorship or inclusion of transactions. And so the power of miners to be able to create blocks and decide which transactions go in the block also means that they have sort of a monopoly on the execution of the EVM over a, a given uh, a block that they're, that they're assigned. And so the question for them is, how do I maximize the amount of value given, given this power? Um, and, and the Flashbot sort of introduction to it, um, uh, to the ecosystem, and the way that the MEV sort of industry has evolved on, on proof of work is for miners to outsource it to searchers. Um, so third parties who come up with strategies on how to order transactions, how to insert their own transactions, um, and then compete for the inclusion uh, into to a block. And Erin, can you elaborate on that by giving people some concrete examples of how MAV works, the types of transactions that happen? I was just about to say, coming from slightly a different angle, it's kind of like... If you think about a regular user, a regular user buys a Uniswap or makes some DeFi transaction. And you could think that if somebody's about to buy a lot of ETH, okay, then the price is going to go up. When DeFi started to get big, traders figured out they can see other people's transactions and front run them, okay, get to their transaction before a major transaction happens and kind of like capture value by buying it cheap just before the price go up. So that's kind of like front running is one piece. A second piece is, you know, there is a price of ETH on Uniswap. Just before the block comes out, somebody sees that the price on Coinbase just crashed, right? So they'll try to capture arbitrage. They know the price is actually different from what's happening on Uniswap, and they'll try to get their transaction in to capture that arbitrage. And so traders had been doing that um, when DeFi started to get serious. And then they started competing who would be the fastest and who would be the one to pay the most, right? So this is where it moved to MEV, to minor extractable value. People start to say, well, if I'm making $1,000, I'll pay 500 of it as tip for the miner or the validator. It doesn't really matter which protocol, but I'll pay it as a tip and then they'll put my transaction first before somebody else. So that led kind of like to the gas wars that kind of like were pre-1559 and pre-flashbots. And so... Traders started to kind of like try to compete with one another, capturing these opportunities. And in my mind, MEV, more than anything, is basically front-running and capturing arbitrage. These are the two big pieces, as I see it. Once things have evolved, then miners realized, wait, instead of actually, you know, they started by maybe doing under-the-table deals and all these kind of stuff. Flashbots came out and said, how about we make it public? How about we allow everyone to participate? And it's minor extractable value because you could think whoever is really good at extracting value can pay more and get their transaction executed. And it is the miner that's being paid for it, right? So if I can make $100 on an arbitrage, but Stefan is really good at it, he can make 150 then he can offer $101 and his transaction or his arbitrage or his front runner will get in and mine won't. And this is kind of like where things currently stand, where miners are the ones making most of the money. They're not actually doing it themselves. Other people are kind of like professionalized and kind of like found the expertise in capturing this value, bribing or paying the fee or however you'd like to call it 
to whoever construct blocks. It's validators in POS, it's miners in proof of work. That piece doesn't really matter. And that's kind of like where things stand. Earlier, you talked about how this happens in DeFi. Does this also happen with things like NFTs or what about single payments? So NFTs for sure, right? It's the same story. If a big NFT drop is happening, everybody wants to be the first one to capture it or maybe mint a million, I don't know, kitty cats or whatnot, et cetera. So because of the financial implications of the NFTs, that game is also being played. But if I'm just, you know, I'm sending one ETH to Laura Shin, then this transaction, there's no, there's no arbitrage. There isn't front running. There isn't anything like that. That transaction would go through one way or another. It's not inside this game, right? The MEV game is very much about DeFi and NFTs. And it's less about, you know, somebody making a payment from one entity to another, or I deploy a smart contract which does something which isn't that valuable at this time or there's no value to extract from it, then that's the regular game. And it's probably worth mentioning that we at Blockchat have been in the game for quite a while. When Flashbots came out, I was actually slightly worried from the implications of that, but Flashbots actually did a really solid favor to the community by siloing this competition, right, if we had the gas wars and people try to outbid one another, basically driving out all normal usage, right? My normal transaction won't go through if I'm not, pay, if I'm not paying really tons of gas and really high fee, although I really shouldn't. So at the time, this was prior to 1559, et cetera, the immediate result of Flashbots siloing the MEV game and kind of like separating it from regular usage was that regular users were no longer kind of like forced to compete in this game. So the immediate result of Flashbot was actually a very positive thing. I was wrong on that. I was kind of like, I was actually concerned about that. And that like, like that taught me to be like, I have my own opinions. I'm a very opinionated guy, but we should also all kind of like, well, I might be wrong, but I, what my opinion is. So I think Wait, this- but Uri, just to clarify, are you saying that the immediate benefit for users was lower gas fees? Yeah, when Flashbots came out, that was the immediate result. Basically, take all the gas competition, put it siloed there, competing against one another, and only the best one is included. Everybody else not really affected. And so just to quantify this for users, you wrote a blog post recently where you said that MEV costs users 160,000 ETH per year. That's roughly $300 million. And about 50% of that is front-running. That's, that's kind of like taking it from... The immediate result of Flashbots was kind of like that effect. On the other hand, I think front-running is bad. Okay, basically, if a user make a transaction and somebody else come and this user gets a worse trade, then the outcome is friction. It's not value. It's not economic activity. It's that me trying to buy a 1,000 ETH cost me, um, I don't know, 1.1 million rather than 1 million. Okay, that kind of thing. And I'm trying to look for ways to capture all the good and the upside of the MEV in the system, kind of like figuring, figuring that piece out without hurting the users, which is hard. Okay. So obviously we've already been talking about flashbots, but it's been Uri talking about it. So Stefan, why don't you explain uh, flashbots role in working on MEV? Um, okay. 
I mean, there's a few ways I could go about it. One of them is to try to entangle some of the things Yuri talked about, but maybe instead I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, you know, how we see our, our own role in the ecosystem. So Flashbots emerged as a, uh, a research collective. Um, and so it was based on the idea that we see this MEV activity having negative externalities on the network. There's a lot of spam in the transaction pool. Regular users are end up ending up paying more and more volatile gas prices. Is there like a fundamental flaw in the way that that the transaction pool works that causes this? Um, that was the initial sort of approach, and so we developed a, a solution for this, right? Which was uh, ended up being called MEV Geth, and it is that you know the transaction pool was not expressive enough for certain types of users of Ethereum. Certain types of users had preferences on the specific position in the block that they had, that the only way they could express that preference was by causing spam or by optimizing for latency or by, you know, basically creating some some externality to everyone else in the network. So our, our, our view of MEV is MEV is a complex, you know, systemic problem for blockchains and solutions, depending on how they're implemented, have some externalities. So we, we research what are the externalities of various different solutions and how can solutions be designed to, to, um, to maximize the alignment with the objectives and the, the, the principles of the underlying blockchain. And so MEVGeth is a version of the Go Ethereum client, which is, I think, still the most popular client that essentially enables these MEV auctions to happen in a separate place rather than, as Uri said, like right in the mempool or, or right on the blockchain. Is that is that a fair characterization? Correct. So it replaces what was, you know, the most common strategy, uh, PGA, right, which is uh, a latency game. Which is? Price, price gas auction. Uh, and it replaces that with just a, a, a sealed, uh, sealed bid auction. Um, so instead of leaking value to investing into low latency strategies, uh, instead you capture that value in the auction directly. Okay. Now, Uri, how is Blocksprout working on MEV? So Blocksprout is a service provider. Okay, We're a networking company. We allow people to see transaction fast, to see blocks fast, to act fast, which for competitive DeFi actors and anybody in the space, basically you want to see any transaction happening before it ha- before it's added to the chain because you want to, it's going to affect the price. You want to know how it affects the price, what's happening at any given moment, especially if you're a large market maker, if you're a major trader playing both the DeFi game and the CeFi game. So that's at the core of our business. And when MEV became a thing, then many of the MEV actors are actually our customers. Okay, So all the MEV searchers want to see everybody else's transactions. Um, they want to see the blocks as fast as they come. They want to make sure that their transactions or their bundles go directly and ASAP to all the, the mining pools because they want to make it to the next block, etc. So we're more like picks and shovels as a company. Then when Flashbot came out, they're running the Flashbot relay, which kind of like connect searchers to the mining pools. We're running also Flashbot relays, kind of like a private version of that, that people pay us to get faster latency, etc. I think when Stefan says like, you know, some transactions has preferences they want to express, I think that's really like high level of saying somebody wants to be first to capture arbitrage or to front run another transaction. Not always, but almost always, right? Or 
just come after a transaction because it creates some opportunity, which is usually still arbitrage. And I think maybe the point where me and Stefan kind of like disagree is that I see it as, okay, we want to minimize externalities and figure out the, the, the effect on gas was very easy to see. So that's, like, that's definitely a point to, to Flashbot's credit. But what are we paying here? And when we define the system in such a way or we build the system in such a way, what's the price that's being paid? If we say that always Ethereum is optimizing for MEV, so every transaction, all the, all the value that can be extracted will be extracted. And so it's really hungry and attempting actively to kind of like capture anything left behind it. What does that mean for users? Okay, like what does that mean if I'm, if I'm a regular user and I'm not? I know, high-frequency trading firm, whatnot, etc. And I just see a price on Ethereum and I, you know, on, sorry, on Uniswap and I tried to buy there. But I allowed for some slippage because maybe the price would slightly change. And I would always get the worst price or I would always get front run. There are some DeFi projects. I spoke with somebody interesting not long ago. Basically, you know, automated vaults that kind of like adjust their positions based on oracles, etc. But they can't be fully automated because all the MEV searchers know, oh, here's an oracle transaction. This is how the positions are going to be adjusted. They always act before this protocol works, and that protocol always gets the worst price. Okay, so this actually affects more than just the regular user that kind of like made the transaction. It also means what kind of product we can or can't build in DeFi. And the question is, what's the trade-off? What do we want to enable? What do we don't want to enable? How much it's benefiting to users? How much it's, you know, giving them hard time? And that's maybe the point where me and Safai might not see it eye to eye. Okay, so before we get into the controversial aspects, which I definitely want to get to, let's make sure that we explain how MEV is going to change as Ethereum moves to proof of stake next month. Yeah, I'm happy to, to talk about it. Obviously, proof of stake has been a long time in the making, but uh, at Flashbots, you know, you know we, we try to keep up to date with uh, as many research topics as we can. Uh, and we saw that, you know, roundabouts last last summer that um, a lot of the core developers are starting to ramp up uh, and focusing on the merge as being the next major release of Ethereum immediately after the London hard fork. Um, and so we started engaging and figuring out, okay, well, the easy thing to do would be for us to continue shipping, you know, the same software that we already have, uh, MEV Geth, for a, a proof of stake environment. But uh, we thought we could do better. And so we engaged with uh, with various different stakeholders, including Ethereum foundations, validators, core devs, client development teams, to try to figure out, is there you know something that we can do to improve the current situation of, um, of MEV on Ethereum? The biggest concerns that they had were basically twofold. One was client diversity, and the second one was uh, solo staker uh, participation in, in MEV. So, you know, one of the big limitations of the way that MEV Geth works is that it requires uh, miners to see the full content of the transactions that they receive. And so that means that you cannot send these transactions to every single miner. You can only send it to mining pools 
that uh, have some trust involved and that you can monitor how they operate with the transactions that they receive. Matching that over to a, a proof of stake world, it would not have been possible to send uh, these transactions over to, to solo validators. In order to mitigate this, we basically developed a, a new piece of software from the ground up, right, called MEV Boost, and that aims to, to sort of solve for these, these key concerns. So it's a neutral piece of software. It's like done sort of in an open source, public good way. Um, and it's software that any validator from you know the largest staking pools to solo validators at home can run to, uh, to get full access to, uh, to MEV. One other component that will be part of this is something called propose or builder separation. Uri, do you want to explain what that is? Sure. Um, although <laughs> I think me and Stefan should have like, like switched roles uh, because I think Stefan would actually have, like, I would explain for the first bit better and he would this one. I want to add something to, to what um, um, Stefan is saying, which I think is important, um, especially for, for the greater community to kind of like figure out where we're going and what are the implications. What MEV Boost does is that it allows any validator out there to receive sealed blocks. Okay, so just like they don't know what's inside the block, they receive the sealed block and actually multiple potential sealed blocks, and they choose who pays them the most. Okay, so maybe one block builder, block builder are special MEV entities that try to maximize um, how much MEV they can capture. And they're each trying to capture as much MEV as possible. And they're, again, similar to the previous setup, trying to outbid one another who would pay the validator the most. And so the validator gets several, hopefully, several um, competing potential blocks. And it chooses which one to actually sign blindly. And then the block propagated either by that validator or by the relay. But basically, it signed it blindly, and then it goes to the network, which basically means, um, and I think it's a big deal, that blocks are constructed to optimize MEV. Okay, If something improves the amount of MEV, it will be included. If it's not, then it wouldn't be included or lower priority. And it's a major shift, again, from the perspective of the users, as I see it. Knowing that this is how blocks are constructed is a big deal. Now, MEV boost is a step towards PBS, is basically the idea of separating the proposer, the validator, which propose a new block to the other validator, from the builder, the one who construct the blocks. And I think it was Vitalik in like two weeks ago in a conference was saying that the motivation to separate these entities is that a small if there isn't a separation, okay, so think about the validator try to optimize and extract as much MEV. You could imagine that a solo validator would earn much less uh, proportionally compared to a giant liquidity pool with tons of resources, right? The solo validator would either construct a vanilla block or would use some open source tool that would help him, while the very large entity will have professionals trying to come up with strategies and construct a better and more optimized block which means that larger validators would be better off, okay? So a validator which is 100 times bigger would make more than 100 times more money, maybe 1,000 times more money. I don't know. Like, I don't know the math of that. And so by separating the validator and the constructor of the block, you're preventing the economies of scale effect of, this, of centralization. So if larger pools are more profitable, 
it makes sense that they will be more dominant. And this is a centralization force. And if you split the two pieces, the actual validation of blocks and the construction of blocks, then the economies of scale and centralization power stays within the MEV block building space. Well, validators are all the same. Whether you're small or you're big, you're, getting, you're going to make the same amount of proportional money. If you're 10 times bigger, you'll make 10 times more money, but not 1,000 times more money because somebody else would be providing, will be doing this work, right? We'll be providing them the same options. Okay, so it sort of sounds like you feel like some parts of this at least are not a, a good move. Like what would you prefer to see happen? So I feel there are issues here. Me and Stefan are actually kind of like we were DMing it like the other day, etc. I was like, Stefan mentioned the externalities around it, okay? We're doing all of this to mitigate negative externalities. And the question is, what are these negative externalities? Like what good are we doing here? What, like, what, how are we saving Ethereum, right? Or we're improving it. And what is the cost? And kind of like balancing between the two. The downside of PBS and the downside of ME boost, MEV boost, et cetera, as I see it, is that it optimizes to maximize MEV. Now, I'm totally okay, or personally, I feel totally okay that arbitrage opportunities will be captured like they'll be captured by somebody for the system to be efficient. It's not bad. I mean, it doesn't hurt anybody. There is inefficiency and whoever fixes it, profit. And I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be the validators. It's actually a good thing. But optimizing for front running and enabling that. So trading is not somewhat adversarial. It's like the most adversarial. You're never going to stand a chance. You're always in like the worst position you could ever be in. That is a cost to the users and the system. So like we want DeFi to flourish. If there wasn't front running, DeFi would flourish more, obviously. And so this is the cost. The question is, what's the upside? And I think this is more a question of Stefan to kind of, okay, what, what's the benefit of doing it? And is it worth it? Yeah, Stefan, so I'm curious, like, did you guys ever look at constructing MEV boost in a way where front running would not be allowed in some fashion? You know, I don't know how you would implement that, but kind of what's your take on the parts of MEV that are harmful to users? I think it's difficult to have a conversation under this framing. You know, a lot of the categorization of MEV that Yuri has been presenting, I think is inaccurate and doesn't represent how MEV works from a research and protocol development perspective. I think that there's very complex implications for MEV across the application layer, as well as the protocol layer. And the most important way to think about it is through the frame of where is the value accrual going and how are the strategies for capturing that value uh, impacting others. I think there's also like some correction I want to put to the way that MV Boost as software was framed. So MV Boost uh, does not inherently maximize MEV in any way. It's actually completely unopinionated. The only thing that it does is it allows validators to outsource the way that they construct blocks to third parties. And the, uh, the approach that those third parties use is completely detached from, from the MEV Boost software itself. So asking a question like, why doesn't MEV Boost prevent front running is 
you know, from the protocol developer perspective, just not really a, like a coherent question. There's a few undefined things here. So first of all, front running itself isn't like a, a defined concept within the realm of blockchains, right? So you have such a thing as a public transaction pool, which, you know, some bot operators pay people like Blockshrout to get uh, preferred access to. And then they use the transaction that they receive from that channel to then insert other transactions ahead of it, right? And then submit that to miners for um, for inclusion. So I think those are the types of strategies that uh, that Yuri is trying to to refer to as as um, as front running, which is really just um, a, a subset of the the MEV strategies that that are out there. Thinking about like how do we mitigate those kinds of strategies is is a difficult topic to talk about and and we can get into that. But you know the the sort of perspective of of the MEV boost is it's not meant to be a layer for solving this this kind of uh, strategies or preventing those kinds of strategies. It's purely just meant to be a layer for allowing validators to outsource and get access to the MEV. Hopping in for a second. So first of all, you're right. Um, MEV boost, like I was like MEV boost allows to give it to third parties, not necessarily to whoever pays it the most. So I totally agree with that. But I remember we were speaking briefly on this in Paris. We were talking about front running versus arbitrage versus other. And you said like, I disagree with like the definition. So I'm not trying to kind of like throw you and like phrase a question in a, in a way that looks bad. Rather, I know you have a different opinion about it. And I'm honestly like interested to get your take I think like it's kind of like arbitrage is kind of like, okay, and front running is bad and we should try to mitigate it. I know your opinion is different, but, and I would very much like to kind of like better understand that. Yeah, sure. So like these are very deep research questions on which even I don't have the best perspective. So, you know, Flashbots has a whole research team that's focused on answering these kinds of questions and they publish a lot of useful documentation on trying to classify different types of MEV. You know, for anyone that's listening to this and interested in checking those out, you can see writings.flashbots.net, and that's where a lot of the the preliminary research and and research articles that we post go. You know, with regards to the ethical side of uh, front-running and arbitrage uh, and just types of strategies out there, um, we have an upcoming post that's going to be on that topic that's going to be published maybe by the time this um, this episode co- goes out. And it's going to go into like depth about those different different classifications. So I wouldn't want to... to Spoil the surprise. Before, uh, before it gets posted. And what about the externalities? We, we talk about that too. Um, it's kind of like, it's, for me, it's super interesting. It's kind of like, what are the externalities that really you think like MEV Boost is, is solving for? It's kind of like one thing is like basically allowing everyone to participate. That's like super easy and kind of like understood. What other, I'm, like, we were just, again, we were talking about it and, and I asked you something. You said, like, no, that's, that's not really what we're solving for. So what are the externalities on the chain and on the user we're trying to stop solving for with MEV Boost or PPS, like one or the other? Yeah, so I sort of mentioned, right, like the design goals behind MEV Boost are to allow for sole validators to participate in MEV and then also to keep promoting sort of client diversity. Both of those things are, uh, maybe I'd say the client diversity one is mostly just an architectural technical one, uh, but allowing solo validators to participate is uh, is perhaps the, the the main one that has implications for the way that the you know the ecosystem of MEV develops. 
which is uh, you want them to be able to extract at the same rate uh, the value of MEV as even the largest uh, staking pools and node operators can. So there's uh, it eliminates right the economies of scale that uh, that comes with being a node operator in a way that encourages even even solo uh, stakers to to participate in the network. That's really the the main uh, the main objective. Uh, with both PBS and and MEV Boost. Now, one thing that that I want to like specify is PBS itself sits on like a much larger roadmap of um, of Ethereum. And so, whenever we talk about these technologies, about these um, these protocol features, they come with one a lot of unanswered research questions and two dependencies on other parts of, for example, the Ethereum roadmap uh, to be able to. Uh, sort of fit together in a cohesive puzzle. So like while PBS may solve, right, the ability of solo validators to permissionlessly participate in, um, you know, uh, in MEV, it doesn't solve other other issues that, uh, that Ethereum may have. All right. So we're going to dive a little bit more into the controversy around this. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Curious about the world of crypto and the future of the next internet? Then check out Web3 with A16Z, the chart-topping technology podcast from the minds at Andreessen Horowitz, the go-to destination for discussions on tech as it changes our world. Whether you're a crypto-curious person looking for signal versus noise in the day's headlines, or a C-suite decision maker seeking to understand Web3 as part of your business strategy, Web3 with A16Z is the podcast for you. Tune in each week for leading insights from the top scientists and makers in the space through carefully curated conversations with acclaimed podcast host Sonal Choksi, former showrunner and longtime host of the A16Z podcast, along with frequent guest appearances and hosting by Chris Dixon. Listen to Web3 with A16Z today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Is your Web3 experience hindered by inadequate crypto wallets and browser extensions? Ava Labs has created Core, a free, non-custodial browser extension engineered for Avalanche users to have a more seamless and secure Web3 experience. The best-in-class Avalanche Bridge now offers native support for the Bitcoin network. Put your Bitcoin to work in the robust DeFi ecosystem by bridging BTC to Avalanche today. With Core, you can also easily swap assets, display your NFTs in style, store your assets in a Ledger-enabled wallet, and put real dollars into your crypto wallet in just a few clicks. Core is everything you need for a simple, secure, and convenient Web3 experience. Download the free Core browser extension from Google Chrome's App Store today. Back to my conversation with Stefan and Uri. So one question I had about what you were saying before about how MEV Boost, you know, doesn't do anything on its own to maximize the amount of MEV being extracted. As far as I understand, it at least makes that aspect of it competitive, meaning builders will 
propose. You're right. It's builders propose. It's complicated. It's confusing. So they're creating these blocks and they're doing it in a way where they're trying to make it something that is profitable for the miner and for themselves, right? So the more value that they can extract, then the better rate they can offer the miner and the better profit that they can give to themselves. So in that aspect, I do think that PBS does, or MEV Boost does kind of contribute to this, right? Yeah. So, you know, here we're getting more talking about what is inherent about MEV and less about the specifics of the MEV Boost software. So one way to think about MEV is like this free energy that's created by uh, by applications, wallets, and users, right? They create transactions in such a way that they're giving the power to someone else to be able to extract value. And the question is, okay, what what is the impact of this and how are third parties able to, uh, to extract that value? Um, that's really sort of where the value uh, originates. So someone is going to be able to see, okay, there's an opportunity here that I want to capture. How do I go about capturing it? You know, in the like full MEV boost system, right? They these are searchers. So search, searchers see some value capture opportunity here. They submit it to to a builder. A builder aggregates all of these uh, these bundles and they produce a block. And then they submit those blocks to validators for uh, for inclusion. So the reason why you want you know a system like this to happen efficiently is because it puts all of each step of uh, a value capture in a public uh, public auction, a public market. So the amount that a builder pays to the validator for for the block becomes publicly known to the entire network. Um, there's no longer sort of these special relationships, these special deals where a, a builder can you know agree with with a validator to say, I will produce all your blocks and we will like split the revenue uh, 50-50. Instead, you have this public market where all of the, the data and the payments become transparent. And it, it just brings a lot more light to, uh, to this entire supply chain or, or this entire industry. Okay, so you've clearly, you know, delineated some of the benefits. But when I asked about MEV on Twitter, the vast majority of the responses were kind of negative to the concept. And you know, as we've been discussing, being able to extract MEV is actually becoming more baked into Ethereum rather than something that's being avoided. And here's just a few of the comments. You know, one user, Harry Papa Rissiu, wrote, why as an industry and community are we not focusing more on prevention instead of just accepting it as something that will always exist? Bitcoin Dad Pod tweeted, why would anyone knowingly consent to participate in a system with MEV? Why not just stick with the fiat system? So what are your responses to this? I think it's very easy to look at MEV on the surface immediately and say like, well, can we just get rid of it? Isn't there something that we can do? Like, isn't there someone that can, you know, prevent this from being... Uh, can devs do something? Yeah, exactly. And and the answer is it's a lot harder than it may look immediately. So MEV like exists and like exists in the traditional financial system as well. And it's the reason why you have such large like financial intermediaries that are just like dominating you know, and, and doing a lot of regulatory capture. So it's not like it doesn't exist elsewhere. It exists elsewhere. Just the ways in which it's dealt with are maybe not as transparent. And like maybe the, the public is not as aware about uh, about where the, the MEV resides. So, you know, step one is just making sure that people understand how the system works. People understand where the value goes. And there are definitely a bunch of different solutions that can be developed for dealing 
with uh, with this value capture. You know, one of the ways that Flashboss is sort of a strong believer in is in reducing the amount of MEV that actually gets exposed. So a lot of the MEV right on 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 Ethereum is exposed from the way that the applications are designed. So Ethereum, it's um, I mean Uniswap, right, is a, is a is a great example and it's sort of the one that that was used in the initial the initial explorations of MEV. Uniswap only works by exposing a ton of uh, slippage for for its users. But Uniswap could also decide to, de- to design an alternative system that doesn't allow their users to expose that much slippage. Similarly, wallets could also uh, figure out how to produce transactions and send user transaction in a way that doesn't leak as much value from, uh, from their users in a way that you know, is capturable by, by other people. So, so one of the important things about like, you know, oh, wow, like MEV is bad. You know, MEV, if only we could solve MEV. Well, users have the choice, right? They choose which application that they want to use. They choose which wallet that they want to use. And the reality is a lot of them continue to choose wallets and applications that expose a lot of value that they could capture. But instead, they send that value to to, to bot operators and ultimately to miners. And so, you know, the, the Foshboss job is like, okay, well, what do we do with all this value that, you know, users and applications have decided to expose? Um, and, and the most stable thing that you can do is uh, submit that all the way down the chain in a transparent way to the validators of the network. I actually also want to ask uh, about one specific comment that someone made where they pointed me to a talk that was given um, by people like it, it was a panel, Vitalik and Hasu and people from Paradigm. And at one moment there was, uh, they were asked, oh, would you rather uh, trade on you know, on a Flashbots version of 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 Ethereum with uh, MEV booster or or MEV baked in, or a fair sequenced rollup, which uh, is just what it sounds like. It's you know not something where the transactions have been reordered in any fashion. And he pointed out, and I did watch this segment that even uh, your own investors, people from Paradigm, uh, would have you know chosen the fair sequenced rollup. So, what is your response to that? I mean, I can't speak for the people at Paradigm, and I don't know the like exact situation involved. Yeah, so it's probably best to ask them what they meant by that. Maybe they didn't understand exactly how the system works. I'm not sure. Maybe they have some other interests in mind. I think it's worthwhile to to, to ask them. And so you you wouldn't go with a fair sequence rollup. You would choose something with the Flashboss method. So I don't think there's any. I mean, there are some solutions that I think approximate what like a good uh, trading experience would be on Ethereum today. The batch auction uh, sort of approaches to building uh, decentralized exchanges is actually quite good, and uh, and helps mitigate a lot of the the, um, the externalities. So I think you know solving it is a solvable problem at the application layer. Um, it's not necessarily something that needs to be solved at the at the protocol layer, and and that is sort of compatible with uh, with any chain, right? So it's a it's a system that you can build um, that helps mitigate or, or helps be- find better prices for end users of um, of decentralized exchanges. That's not dependent on the protocol in which it's built, um, which is always like a good way to build uh, these kinds of applications. So like, would I prefer to use like Flashbots versus fair sequencing? To me, isn't really the question. The question is like, would I prefer to build, use a decentralized exchange that gives me the best price, or one that like exposes you know value to someone else? And my answer is always going to be the one that gives me the best price. 
I also was wondering just kind of, uh, if we're going to look at sort of other consequences of implementing this um, more fully into Ethereum, uh, I saw that the number of MEV extractors has decreased over the last two years. It went from 80 down to like about 27 now. And I wonder, as we get into this space where it's sort of more baked in, won't over time, the larger extractors simply become more competitive, therefore winning more auctions, eventually leading eventually to centralization? Or if if this assumption is incorrect, you know, what do you think will happen or why have we already seen that the number of extractors has been decreasing? I think it's an, an, uh, it's an important discussion to have. I will ask, like, is that based on the Flashbots Explore uh, numbers or is it based on... A Dune, a Dune, Dune XYZ, yeah. Yeah, I think it's difficult to know exactly the number uh, because as, as strategies get more complex, there are it becomes harder and harder to define exactly like what is uh, MEV strategy and what isn't, right? Like, so we can say we can look at a specific strategy like atomic arbitrage on Ethereum, and we can see that like over time uh, there are fewer parties that are sort of excelling at it. And I think that's normal. Right, like for a given strategy space, you'll have specialization over time, and certain parties will be able to to sort of reliably capture more opportunities. The ones that aren't eventually fall out of the market. Um, so you know, it's it's interesting to look at it uh, as a as a pure, per strategy space. Definitely, I think MEV, just like every other industry, sort of as it matures, you sort of see very clearly who are the winners and and who um, who uh, aren't able to compete. The goal, uh, I think, in in MEV and any other industry should be to foster maximum amount of competition, right? So you want to be able to have a, a system that trends towards more pure competition and uh, low barriers to entry for new entrants rather than something that trends towards being more monopolistic where a single party is able to capture all of it. And that's that's perhaps the, 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 the conversation that becomes more interesting is, like, does having only few parties are acting monopolistically have any externalities and flashbox perspective is like yes definitely it does um and so that's something that we uh, we want to avoid um and we want to maximize the amount of competition so another question that i have which is highly relevant given what happened with tornado cash recently is that again this was suggested on twitter by rebecca reddick of ave And she mentioned that the Bank of International Settlements recently wrote a paper on MEV, and in it they said, in most jurisdictions, activities such as front-running are considered illegal. And in the paper, they suggested that exploiting MEV in blockchains could be illegal in those jurisdictions. And I also saw a paper published last week in SSRN by two researchers at the University of Surrey. They assert that sandwich attacks, which is um, having a, a transaction uh, that pushes up the user's price and then uh, a transaction on the other side that is able to benefit from that, profit from that, that they run a significant risk of being found to violate the chief anti-fraud provision of the Commodities Exchange Act as effectuated by CFTC Rule 180.1. So what do you guys think about this potential illegality of exploiting at least certain types of MEV, especially, you know, as we're seeing these kind of freakouts about what the sanctions might mean for Ethereum at the protocol level? First of all, the inter- I always take with a grain of salt everything coming out from the International Bank of Settlement. And it, that, like, not even regarding to this, this might actually have a point, but like as a source for like whose announcements we should be listening to. But I think 
this, and especially with the tornado cache and everything around here, actually brings us to some serious questions we need to answer also in the in in the context of MEV and front running in general. When what do we as actors in it, what do we do? With ME specifically tornado cache is a complicated question, right? If Blockstrout is a block builder and we're trying to add transactions and construct them into a block and give that to the validator. And that block includes a banned transaction, an OFAC banned transaction. Are we facilitating that transaction? And maybe the answer is yes, maybe the answer is no. We think the answer is no because, you know, we're helping the validator order the transaction based on their preference. They could accept it or not accept it, et cetera. Um, but it's definitely a major legal question that everybody in the space are looking into. And what are the implications of what, both for major um, um, staking pools, whether they are like, you know, Coinbase and exchanges, whether they're Lido, do they comply? Do they not comply? Do they build blocks with such transactions? Do they not build such? Yeah, but I want you to answer these questions for MEV. It, you know, it's 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 not as serious as OFAC, but just because of like like the implications of it and how like is this national security or is this like a slap on the wrist? But the same goes here as well. It's kind of like if you're participating in it, are you in fact breaking the law in your jurisdiction? And there are two parts here. Um, one of them is completely legal, which I think both me and Stefan are not the person to uh, to the people to actually answer about. It. Okay, it's kind of like. Well, it really depends when you create a system, like, is what my entity doing, is that participating or not participating? If I'm accepting from somebody else and doing front running, am I participating in it? Also, front running isn't necessarily the right term for it. We just like, we just borrowed it from a different field. So there's, it's not exactly the same. From my perspective, it's more like, uh, think of, Flash boys, right? The people connected New York and Chicago, right? If you're one millisecond faster than everybody else and you you manage to reach, you know, price crashes in New York, you're the first one to reach Chicago and sell before everybody else. Are you front running? And that's kind of like, there, there are legal questions around that. I think the more interesting question, especially for people like us, are actually not the legal ones. It's actually the ethical ones. Like, is this a bad thing that we're doing here? Is this a bad thing we're enabling here? It might be a bit of a non-answer because like, it's a legal question. You know, me and Stefan are not lawyers, but I think we disagree on, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Um, if Stefan calls MEV like it's energy out there that people, you know, MEV actors or, or others could extract, I see it slightly differently. If somebody makes a transaction and he wants to buy ETH for $1,000 and the price of ETH is $1,000, but you know, 15 seconds later, okay, the price have changed. And it's kind of like, well, price went down to $900. And now someone, oh, look at this sucker transaction. I can buy, sell him for a thousand and then sell after him and capture value that way. Is that a bad thing? It's, and saying that the application layers should just like solve it. I'm not sure I agree with that. Like maybe some applications can solve some of it. But if we're talking about Ethereum, like what should Ethereum as the base layer do? It's an open question from my end. Should it optimize for all of that and just leave it to applications on top of it or provide a system-wide solution which aims to mitigate it? 
Yeah, I I didn't get to mention this, but you know, as Uri just said, it looks like this will be integrated uh, at the protocol level. I guess we alluded to that earlier. But given these risks about the potential illegality of even 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 if not talking about included in the protocol, which is you know the the next big thing, de facto this is how validators are going to run very very soon. Okay, this is happening right now, and it's a major change. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. I don't know, but it's definitely a major change. And I'm not sure all the community would agree with Stefan that this is kind of like a neutral situation? How does this affect users, et cetera? And I think something, it's something that users should be aware. This is how Ethereum is going to act very, very soon. Stefan, what do you think, uh, given what I just mentioned about this potentially being illegal in some jurisdictions, what do you think about the fact that this is the way Ethereum is moving us to integrate it more? I don't think that's true. Um, I don't think that's the way that Ethereum is moving. Again, you know, MEV Boost does a very specific thing, right? It allows all validators to be able to extract at a proportional amount to their stake, right? It eliminates economies of scale. Um, it doesn't have sort of an opinion on um, on uh, like legal issues that um, that uh, that you mentioned. So I just want to avoid sort of entangling separate uh, separate questions or concerns together uh, in this in this conversation because. I don't think it, it's, you know, it, it definitely causes more confusion than it does uh, help the, the public uh, understand how these systems work. Wait, so you're saying that if this does get integrated at the protocol level, then it's it, you don't think there's a problem with, you know, what, what at least these legal analyses say? What is this and what does integrated at the protocol level mean? <laughs> oh, I mean, building uh, PBS into Ethereum. Yeah, so PBS is a commit reveal scheme, right, at the block level that allows for a validator to accept uh, a block from the network. Um, and then it does a change to the way that the fork choice rule uh, works to be able to say, to accommodate the fact that you have this commit reveal at the protocol level. What it doesn't say, it doesn't say anything about the way that the blocks are constructed or sort of anything that happens before uh, before that commit reveal period. Um, so you know, PBS, while like it is sort of a a, a protocol change, it, it really does not impact the way that uh, MEV itself gets extracted from from how it does today. One of the research paths that that is interesting is uh, uh, sort of further uh, transaction pool privacy, um, right? Um, and is there ways to provide that in a way that is not trusted? So today, right, like users can use uh, uh, something. Uh, like Flashbots Protect to be able to send transactions directly to a builder and get those transactions included included on Ethereum, but they still have to reveal those transactions to uh, to the builder. Uh, and so ultimately, the the builder can uh, only in a trusted way sort of promise, "Hey, I won't operate on any of the information that you've revealed." Um, but you know, using privacy technologies like tr- threshold encryption, SGX, or others, right, it would be possible to um, to implement technologies where um, it's not possible for a builder to to see um, to see the content of the user transactions. Um, so I think like those kinds of solutions, those kinds of research topics are sort of completely separate from PBS and and PBS getting included um, at the protocol level and and are definitely sort of active areas of research that might be more relevant to to questions of you know what options does a user have when they send their transactions um, uh, to a platform like. Um, like uh, like Ethereum. 
You know, about the, the, the posts that you mentioned, uh, the report by the BIC and, and the reports on, on the CFTC role on, uh, yeah, on the CFTC role and, and sandwiching. So I think like this is a new topic that's being explored, um, academically, which is like, what are the ethics of, uh, of transactions? How does that relate to MEV and, uh, uh how does that relate to, to the law and, I think those are good, like initial explorations, but they um, they do miss some some aspects of of the problem, as far as I understand. Again, we have our research team that's like specifically looking at this, and I don't know the details, but but my understanding is that um, parts of the analysis may not consider exactly how how it actually sort of ends up working on, on Ethereum, for example, presenting a similarity that. Uh, front running in in the traditional finance uh, uh, sphere is the same as front running in the in the in the blockchain context. They they end up being very very different um, very different uh, activities that you know probably would benefit from being called differently because otherwise it's it, it involves a lot of uh, mental models that are borrowed from a system that that is completely different. Um, hmm. Interesting about threshold encryption and some of these other options that you mentioned to conceal the mempool and make it effectively impossible to exploit MEV. Um, as far as I know, I think Osmosis at least is working on baking in threshold encryption. Are we seeing that other chains are trying to do this? And if so, would that eventually make Ethereum less competitive against them? Or is this something that Ethereum is also looking into? So I don't think that they make it less possible to extract MEV. Again, all MEV that exists will be extracted. And the question is just, what are the externalities of that extraction? Um, and so if an application Wait, sends uh, a... How, how with threshold encryption can people exploit that if they can't see the, the transactions? So, I mean, there's multiple different ways. So it, it pushes it at the edges of the encryption, right? So it depends on what is the sequencing model of those transactions. It depends on what happens before a transaction is encrypted. It depends on what happens when a transaction is decrypted. So for example, if you have like a bunch of opportunities that create an arbitrage behind them um, and you push those through a threshold encryption system, whenever the threshold encryption decrypts, right, is when the MEV gets exposed. And then whoever is in the best position to capture that MEV gets to capture it. So it transforms what has been sort of a, an auction-based system around the, the capture of that opportunity into a latency game. So whoever is co-located and is the first one to see the decryption and able to submit a solution to it gets to capture that, uh, the MEV under that framework. Okay. But front running wouldn't be possible. No, similarly, you can build other systems on the other end of the, of the threshold encryption. So because users are sort of submitting transactions, um, to this threshold encryption, you don't actually solve the problem of payment for order flow, right? So order flow in itself has value that comes from the information that contained in the transactions submitted by the end users. And so threshold encryption doesn't solve this, this problem. And so you can build a system in front of the threshold encryption that says, hey, if you route transactions to me, um, I will give you the same execution or better execution than you would get through the threshold encryption system. Uh, and you, know, you can see it because I'm willing to pay you for it. And so you can actually, you know, still see that the MEV that gets exposed can either be captured at either end of the, the encryption scheme. Although in that part, it means the user captures part of it, of its own MEV, right? If, if whoever builds a system, right, is kind of like, well, show me the transaction, I would bid you to send them through me versus through a different system. 
it means the user who created this value with his transaction would capture a bigger part of it. And whoever built that system would build, will capture a smaller piece of that. And if it's competitive, you could say, you could, similar to the argument about like miners or validators eventually capturing all the value. If you have a competitive system that everybody tried to outbid one another to see the order flow, then it would be the user who would capture the value. And in my opinion, it's a better equilibrium. Okay, it's kind of like, yes, the, if the value being extracted goes back to whoever created it, it wasn't extracted. It stayed with whoever created it. Yeah, the big the big problem that that exists with order flow systems in this way is that oftentimes the value is not attributable, right? Um, and so it can be difficult to tell exactly who generated the MEV that ends up being uh, extracted. But for sure, I think, you know, in the best design applications and wallets, they'll be the ones, that, and again, I'm saying, you know, applications and wallets because a payment for order flow type of solution to me exists at the application wallet level, right? It doesn't exist at the at the protocol level. But, you know, the, the best, uh, the best uh, applications of wallets will be the ones that are able to return the maximum amount of value to their users, effectively giving them the best price. Um, and so what this also means is ex- exposing a lot less MEV by these users, right? So one way to think about it is a good order flow system, right, like or a good order flow solution is one that minimizes the amount of MEV that's exposed. Um, Ori, you have a theory about different levers that can be pulled to affect MEV. And it also goes into kind of how much MEV is impacting the ETH price, or uh, if we were to reduce it, how much that would benefit the ETH price. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, So the high level is something along these lines. Um, Thinking from my comment earlier, I think the major pieces of MEV is basically arbitrage opportunities and front-running opportunities. And arbitrage is kind of okay. It doesn't hurt anybody. Somebody should capture it. It might as well be the miners or validators or whoever produces blocks. It actually might be a good thing that way. But front-running, meaning hurting the users. Okay, You send a transaction and you get a worse execution, either time passed or, and, and your pricing, like maybe you made a bad transaction, but also you might have done your due diligence, but the market have changed and kept you kind of like exposed because you were trying to buy ETH at $1,000, even though while waiting, the price had crashed and you will get front run. My take is that in order to achieve that, we have two interesting levers. None of them actually solve it by itself, but I haven't given up about finding a better solution to the current situation. One of them is understanding that when now that we're moving from proof of work to proof of stake, there is a new actor in like playing. That actor are, is or are stakers. Okay. So in a proof of work world, you have miners, they're you know using their hardware, they're trying to get as much ETH in, in our context, etc. With POS, all of a sudden, whoever construct blocks also has a giant bag of ETH. In today price, I don't know, $25, $30 billion or so. And so if you look at the MEV game and you say, well, wouldn't it be nice if arbitrage still existed and people be able to capture it and even validate or capture it is fine, but do we have a magical way to eradicate front running so it doesn't hurt users? And if you look at the numbers, if you see if MEV pays the validators and therefore the stakers, um, something like $100 million per year 
in MEV, in forefront running. So something like $100 million for arbitrage opportunities and $100 million for captured through front running. This is a really big number up until you compare it to how much is at stake. Okay, so if you look at all the stakers together and they have $20 billion, $30 billion worth of bag of ETH, and you could say, well, how much is that for you? And that's something like, well, if you do the or 100 million out of that, like the, the TLDR going back for a second, if there was a theoretical world in which front running doesn't happen and you'd ask yourself, how does that affect the price of ETH and how does that affect the bags of the stagers? And you'd say, you know what? If we magically eradicated front running, the value of ETH in five years will be, let's say, 10% higher in this theoretical world where DeFi flourish and there is no front running compared to the current world with front running. If the difference is only 5% or 10%, then stakers would actually rather not allowing for front runners. Okay. Stakers would make more money if front running, if front running is eradicated somehow magically and their value of their ETH goes up, okay? Because $100 million is nothing when you have a giant, giant bag of ETH. And so the math around it is kind of nice. Basically, if it would only increase the price of ETH by something like 4% over five years, and the audience could think, what would price of ETH look like? You know, and that, and anybody could have an opinion. Would it be 5% more, 10% more, 50% more, 2x? if we somehow magically allowed DeFi to flourish without front running. And so this is a super powerful lever. Okay, stakers decide what validators would do. Okay, if stakers stake with validators that don't do front running, there will be no front running. The problem with that, or with this particular lever, and why this single lever doesn't solve the problem, is that if there was just one staker in the world, and he would have to choose, oh, do I eradicate front running or not? Then he would definitely choose to eradicate front running. Okay. Eradicating front running would pay him something like $300, $400 million per year, even if we're talking about a small price change of, of 10% over five years versus the $100 million that it would get from front running. But if you have, if you have many stakers, it's still in their collective favorite. This is a classical tragedy of the commons. Each one of them would want everybody not to do front running, but each one individually, when it's their turn to propose a block, they would, you know, I'd actually make more money if I include front running and I'll make slightly more money. So as a collective, they'll make more money if they eradicate front running and only stake with validators which don't do front running but each individual one would actually be slightly better off if it does front running, which kind of like breaks this entire like utopian dream. But it's a start point, okay? They would make more money. Can we push them in this right direction? Which brings us to the second lever that we have, which is users. Stefan alluded it earlier that users actually control the order flow, okay? Whoever makes the money from front running actually needs to fees these transaction. And currently, People just send out the transaction to the peer-to-peer -peer network, being seen by everyone, and get wrecked. Like, and this is where I kind of like disagree with Stefan. 
it's not a good thing that you send your transaction out there and you'll always get the worst possible execution for your transaction. But they can choose where to send their transaction, right? So you could imagine a world where there'll be an MEV searcher or a block builder. And again, if there was just single user, right, and who was doing all the transactions, it would tell them, listen, I give you the transactions, but you don't front run me. You can capture arbitrage, you can make money however you'd like, but you don't front run me. If you front run me, I take my order flow and I go elsewhere. And that MEV searcher or builder would be the most profitable one. He has access to the order flows. He can capture arbitrage. He can make money and others can't. So users actually have a lot more power as a group than they're actually utilizing or people realize. But again, it's a utopian dream. How do we actually do it? Like, How do users actually leverage the fact that they control the order flow? And it's an interesting and hard question. MetaMask is a bit of a kingmaker in that regard. You could say, well, MetaMask can choose whoever. If we all direct the transaction to a trusted entity we have a deal with, that's not really decentralized, right? Basically, we just move to a centralized setup. So there is a trade-off here. Like you want it to be decentralized and send it, anybody could send it everywhere. And so users are kind of like faced with a hard choice. And users or wallets, depending on how you look at it, do I send it everyone and the user to, you know, just to the broad peer-to-peer network and everybody get wrecked? Or we send it to just a few entities who promise us that they won't front run us, but kind of like lose out on the decentralization piece. And my, what I'm trying to solve for, and I'm trying to figure out in through blocks out and in general in discussion with the community is how, how can we utilize these two levers to get the best outcome for users. Okay, and I think it's the users we should care about. And I think this is where me and Stefan not necessarily agree. Okay, I think in a, but, well, taking it back, Stefan looking in a funny way, I'm sure. And again, Stefan is a good, it's not that Stefan, I think Stefan is a bad guy. It's just that I think it is possible to reduce MEV by playing with these levers and designing the system, right? And kind of like, at the Ethereum level, okay? So we make the base layer provide some economic guarantees and some mode of operation and not go to every application and say, oh, figure your shit out, okay? Like build it in a way that doesn't extract MEV. And going back to Stefan's first point, we just, if, if there are more serious validators who can extract more value, and there are the solo validators who extract less value, then MEV boost basically said, well, okay, now everybody are super well-armed. Everybody are good at extracting, okay? So we took a somewhat adversarial setup and we made it super adversarial in terms of like, okay, everybody are fair, but this is very, very adversarial. Your transaction would be tried to take advantage of. And my angle is more, oh, okay. So the angle we should be exploring is how do we utilize maybe these two levers, which I mentioned, that it's actually in the stakers' benefit for front-running not to happen? Okay, if MEV Boost allows validators to connect to any third party that produces a block, then maybe stakers tell their validators, listen, accept blocks, but only if they don't have front-running. If, if they accept front-running, send it to somebody else. So it's a potential. And if user transaction would kind of like be, could be used combined, 
then maybe we stand a chance. Maybe we can find a good solution. Yeah. So um, we're like over time. Why don't, uh, Stefan, why don't you respond to that? While you're uh, talking about it, let's bring in this idea again about how um, validators could potentially share their MEV profit with users because I find that an interesting idea. And go ahead and respond to Uri. Yeah, I didn't like that framing. Um, I, I think I'd encourage everyone to look at something that's called the MEV supply chain. Um, and I think it's probably the most useful concept to think about how can this system evolve and what is like a good direction for the entire thing to evolve and what is a bad direction for, for it to evolve. And the simple heuristic that I give in that it's both a presentation and uh, in an article is that you should look at where the value accrual is. If most of the value ends up accruing with users or validators, it's probably a good MEV supply chain. If most of the value ends up accruing with someone in the middle, like a searcher, a builder, or a relay, or some other roles, or an application, a wallet, then it's probably not a good supply chain. The problem with MEV is that there's a lot of incentive for value capture. And so it's easy for someone to say, hey, here's a solution that solves MEV. You have to pay me to access it. We're both going to be better off because uh, you're going to receive more value. I'm going to receive money. Um, but the problem is usually that causes some centralization risk in the supply chain. So this, you know, the order flow problem in this question that we're, we're, uh, we're discussing is one of the main ways in which the supply chain ends up becoming super centralized. Right. A block builder that's saying, hey, if you exclusively send your transactions to me, I'll give you a better deal. Also means that this now block builder is not operating on the same amount of transactions as all the other block builders in the system. And they can then use this advantage to integrate further down the supply chain and sort of reinforce a monopolistic position. So it's not that simple. It's not as simple as just saying like, okay, here's a product that's better for users in this scenario. If this product also helps a certain entity get a sort of a monopolistic position, then it will be bad for the uh, whole set of users as a whole and sort of entrench this um, this entity. So, you know, the FlatFlux perspective on this, on this problem is there are multiple different sources of centralization. The main one initially was access to block space. And it's sort of the initial uh, monopoly that, uh, that Flashbots unbundled. Uh, but we see other two big sources of monopolies that uh, are unsolved for as of yet. One of them is order flow, um, and the other one is cross-domain execution. So execution on multiple different uh, uh, chains. Um, and you know the solution that we see to this is what we sort of loosely define as decentralized block building. And it's really just a vision of the future that says, this supply chain that we have is going to be maximally competitive in such a way that there is no single entity in the middle that's able to extract uh, a huge amount of the rent. And therefore, the value gets pushed back to the user under the form of better order flow systems or applications like expose less MEV, I should say, or uh, if, uh, efficient and transparent markets for, uh, for block space, which return the value to, uh, to validators and, and stakers. All right. There's so much more to unpack. I had a number of other questions that we're going to have to maybe touch on another time. And one last fact that I do want to throw out there is that right before we recorded, Hasu of Flashbots did also announce that Flashbots is going to be open sourcing its relayer ahead of the merge. Um, I think they had originally planned to do it at the time of the merge. But given what happened with Tornado Cash, I, I guess they felt the need to to move that timeline up. Um, all right. You guys, this has been so fascinating. Where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Um, you could always Google Blocks Route, B-L-O-A-X-R-O-U-T-E. 
or you know me Uri Klarman basically on Twitter. Like I think that goes for a lot of the interesting discussion. Stefan, shoot your way, but um, um, basically I'm trying to keep everything on Twitter in the open because I think the community should be a part of the discussion and not just like, you know left or us like MEV nerds in our in our in our channels. Um, yeah, so Flashbots, um, we still don't have a website. I don't know. <laughs> We're two years into into this project, and and we still have failed to put together a website. Um, but uh, but we do have a writings website. So writings.flashbots.net is a good place to go. Uh, we have a Discord community uh, where people can go and, and hang out, and we're also super active on Twitter. So uh, there are a lot of, of various uh, Flashbots participants that are engaging on. Perfect. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure having you both on Unchained. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about MEV, Stefan, and Uri, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Matt Pilchard, Juan Urbanovich, Pam Majumdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thank you.